Welcome to Translation Confidential. This is Peter Argondizo, and I'm joined by Patrick Daly. And today's topic is English as an official language. And Patrick, is it an official language? Uh, it is not in the U.S. Um, currently, the official language in the United States is nothing. <laughs> Great. So what, what's kind of the the crux of the argument or why is this important or why do people discuss this? Why does this come up, Patrick? What, what have you found in prepping for the show? Yeah, um, I found um, you, you and I both obviously stumbled across the same survey um, from the American Community Survey. And, and that's um, we also pulled some data from the U.S. Census Bureau. Um, some of the interesting things I found out about language in the U.S. Um, is that there are over 350 languages spoken in the United States. That kind of blew my mind. Um, obviously, I was you know, thinking maybe the most popular 20 or 30 languages in the world. You'd get a good amount of speakers of those languages in the U.S., but I didn't realize the extent of how many different languages there are in the U.S. Were there any surprises in that list for you, Patrick? I mean, we can probably go over the top 10 if you'd like. Yeah. Um, so English was the number one language. No surprise there. Number two was Spanish, which again, no surprise there. Um, and English had roughly 239 million native speakers. Spanish had about 41 million. Um, the next one, also, I'm not really surprised, um, was any variant of Chinese um, at about 3.5 million. And you figure that's one of the biggest countries in the world. So there's going to be a lot of speakers of that no matter what country you're in. Um, given the size of the U.S., there's there's bound to be a good amount of um, Chinese speakers. The next one uh, was one, or actually the next two were two that really stuck out to me. Um, and that was Tagalog with 1.7 million and Vietnamese with 1.5 million. Um, so those are two not as gigantic languages or they don't come from as large countries. Um, but I think what that shows is there's been a big, um, a big rise in immigration from those countries to the U S. Um, and then when those, when those immigrants do come in they're obviously their native language is either Tagalog or Vietnamese, but then kind of as generations go on, typically they're the next generation will maybe be bilingual, um, and have kind of that melting pot that we see a lot of in the U S. And I think we should make a point to say that because some may not be familiar with uh, Tagalog. It's um, from the Philippines. So sometimes people will um, call it Filipino. Um, so yeah, that it is, it, that is interesting. And then I think rounding that out, we've got you know, Arabic and French, Korean, Russian, German, all very similar in terms of the numbers, Haitian Creole, Hindi, Portuguese, Italian, and Polish which obviously is huge in our area. Um, Chicago has a, a massive concentration of Polish speakers. So I think a fair amount of this is obviously regional as well. Um, you know, like in central Wisconsin and Minneapolis, um, you know, Hmong is really big. There are a lot of uh, immigrants uh, from the former Cambodia that speak yeah, Hmong. I think that's another super interesting thing that we could dive into in a whole other show is kind of how different pockets of different languages or cultures or immigrants pop up in kind of various places. Like you said, um, like I, the one you mentioned, Hmong is obviously super interesting and very close to us, <clears throat> but I'm sure there's all sorts of pockets all over the U S of, of these languages. Yeah. I mean, that would be great. I think we'll, we should definitely do a show on that. Um, I think this is good for setting up the framework of our discussion. So we kind of have some statistics, easy for me to say, and we kind of understand 
um, you know, where the discussion starts from. And I think we have to look at legislation. I, th- I think I want to make a strong point to say that we're not really trying to inject too much opinion on the legislation. We're really trying to provide a framework here and everybody can make their own decision. Um, but what are your thoughts on legislation and language, Patrick? What, what did you discover in, uh, in prepping for mm-hmm. today? I, I mean, even though we don't have an official language in the U.S., I'd say that our de facto official language is English. While it's not officially labeled that, to me, that really doesn't matter. Um, all of our legislation is published in English, all the laws, anything government related is essentially conducted in English. So while it's not, doesn't have the official label of our language, it, it just is. Um, and I really, at least in my opinion, I don't see the need to make it official. Um, we have, we are a gigantic melting pot. As I said before, there are a lot of people in the U S who English is not their first language. And I think it's, powerful for them um, if English is not their first language to receive that legislation either translated into their their language or so they can at least understand what's going on. It's not going to be, hey, learn learn English or else. It's going to be, hey, you know, our quote unquote official language is English, but here is the same thing in so many other languages. And it seems like, um, you know, a lot of this, this energy is, is old, right? And, and doing some research, it seems that uh, this discussion has been going on since the founding fathers framed uh, the constitution and what languages to publish the document in. And it's been a struggle ever since then. And I, I think, especially when you see things like the advent of the EU and the big discussions around, well, what's the official language of the EU and what are they going to publish the documentation in and all those sort of things. I think that that sort of brings the discussion back into focus here in the United States. And uh, I I did find something interesting. There was um, a House Resolution 997 called the English uh, Language Unity Act of 2017. And uh, Representative King of Iowa, uh, of course, was the father of that bill. And uh, for me, what was interesting, it failed, it it eventually failed. But for me, what was interesting is like, what was the energy behind it? And there's... um, some groups, and one of them is, is pro-English. It's a, a Virginia-based nonprofit organization. And their whole idea is, well, gosh, we spend a lot of money. The U.S. government spends a lot of money on translation services. Of course, because we're in this industry, we, we maybe are a little bit jaded uh, to it since it's uh, sort of the livelihood of uh, a lot of agencies uh, in our domain. But I guess the point to me there is, if you don't translate it, what does that do? I mean, do you have a large population of disaffected people that really don't understand what's going on? And and I think the answer is yes. Uh, you know, without coming down too strongly on, um, on that as an opinion, I think I'm going to look at it from my own personal perspective, being the child of immigrants. Um, you know, when my folks came here, their English wasn't great. Um, you know, my mom passed not too long ago and her English wasn't great. Um, her circle of friends was, uh, mainly Italian, but she was very proud to be an American. Uh, my father, very proud to be an American, but that's separate from the language, right? I mean, the language is what they were born into. Um, and I think that's where it seems like the discussion comes from is either the investment in money or somehow not speaking English means that you're not proud to be here. And I, I, 
I don't, I don't think that's always the case. I'm going to say that's the minority. I really don't think that, you know, not speaking the language makes you not a patriot, I guess. Yeah. I mean, another way that, that I look at it is, you know, yes, the government is making a significant investment in language services, whether it's to translate laws, bills, or have interpreters at certain events or whatever it might be. But I think that's also investing in their constituents. They're, they're providing more information, which really, you know, to me, let's say, I'm even put, trying to put myself in the shoes of an immigrant. If I am watching something on a national government level and I see, oh, this is, you know, I can get subtitles in Italian or whatever language it might be, that's going to make me think, wow, these guys, you know, they're trying to reach me. They're trying to communicate with me. You know, I'm I'm going to respond to that positively when things are available in my native language. I'm not just like, oh, it's in English. I don't know what they're saying. Change the channel next. I'll have a little bit more connection from the people who are speaking at that event. Well, and I think it's a bridge. I mean, for my folks, it was re- never really an option. You know, hey, you, you're you're going to pursue higher education. You're going to embrace your language at home. We're certainly going to have our traditions and we're going to speak um, Italian as well as English, um, which we did. And quite frankly, that helped me. And it's, it's the business I'm in today. If it hadn't been for that... Um, the other language being taught at home and sort of this idea of embracing the other language. And uh, for me, and I've shared this, I think in other episodes, the idea of helping people, you know, that idea of connection. Uh, I was uh, in eighth grade, I think it was, Hey, I must've been eighth grade or ninth grade. And I was in a bank and there was an older Italian gentleman who couldn't transact. And if I hadn't been there, he wouldn't have been able to transact. He was trying to make a withdrawal for a gift for a birthday of one of his grandkids. And I was able to interpret for him. Now it's interesting because his dialect was a little bit heavier than I was used to. Um, but I was able to help him. We got the job done. And that was my earliest, um, let's say that was my first interpretation job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I've been in that situation too, but kind of in the opposite role. Um, I was in on vacation in Peru with my family and um, our guide did speak English, but obviously it was his second language. Um, so by the end of the trip, the last, the last leg of it was we were going to Machu Picchu to see um, the ancient ruins there. And he turned to me because he knew I spoke Spanish because I'd been talking to him a little bit before the trip. He's like, all right, I'm done. You do it now. So he would speak everything in Spanish, and then I would have to turn to basically my family, and there were a few other English speakers there. He's like, all right, your turn, go. So I think that is super valuable. I mean, as small as that might be, it was important for my family to still understand everything that's going on there. They can still get all that information and history and just understand what's going on around them. That's that's a great story, Patrick. Um, You know, I I think there's all those opportunities for personal connection with language, you know, whether it's because we're traveling or we're assisting someone who's in need. Um, But yeah, I think it sort of boils down to, for me, is um, an investment. I like what you said about an investment in constituents. And I, I think that that's really how we should see it, you know, as a bridge to the next generation or a bridge to... um, you know, getting everyone assimilated into the melting pot. That's the United States. I mean, whether we like it or not, we're made up of immigrants. That's our culture. Um, there's very few of us that are native to this country. So um, 
you know, we're going to see different waves of immigrants, whether it was the Italians or the Irish or the Germans at different times in our history. And now, of course, with Spanish speakers, I I think you're already seeing it. You're already seeing the second and and even the third generation in some cases uh, flourishing in this country and and going forward and speaking English completely fine and, um, you know, uh, pursuing higher education and doing the things that we constitute as success in this country. So um, I think it's interesting as well, though, that at the state level, there's what, over half the states, I think it's 30 30 or 31 states that have made English an official language. But interestingly enough, there's three states that have declared other languages as their official languages. And this was really interesting to me. South South Dakota has adopted the Sioux language. And uh, as their official language, and Hawaii is Hawaiian Pidgin English, and in Alaska they've designated more than twenty indigenous languages, obviously because of uh, their their population. So I, I think that that's interesting. That from you know at a state level, uh, it might be somewhat different. But in the end, I think all these states still provide you know translated materials in different languages. And of of course, I'm pretty sure if you go to South Dakota and you go to vote, uh, or you go to do something at the DMV, the documents are in English. So, um, so I, actually, I saw, I saw that same article that you saw. And then, um, mm-hmm. I saw a few other ones, a couple of those do offer like all official documents in those languages. In that language, so, right? So mm-hmm. like, you're talking about ballots and things like that. Um, I think it, I think it was South Dakota. I think they offered the ballots in Sioux if you requested it. Um, but, but they still other... provide English, right? Yes. Um, I so a couple other states that were interesting too were kind of Arizona and New Mexico, which are closer to um, our border with Mexico, and they kind of are working through getting all of that material in Spanish because they have so many Spanish-speaking constituents. Um, but I think they did get um, all voting materials translated into Spanish, which again. People can say, oh, why are we spending money on that? But again, it's an investment in the people of your community. So I think that's definitely worthwhile. Absolutely. And I think voting is where you see a lot of um, translation efforts. Uh, that's definitely a place where, and in the, the census, you know, where the government's trying to collect information, there's a lot of translated materials around um uh, get collecting data for the census. And it makes sense because a lot of government programs stem off of that information. Um, so yeah, I, I think it, I, for, for me, I think, you know, that's really the gist of it. It's really politics aside is just understanding, well, how do we, how do we get people to become part of our melting pot? And I, I think that that's really important. Um, another topic that I thought was interesting was the idea of xenophobia around, um, spoken language and, Really interesting to dig back into our history. And of course, um, one of the examples that I found was sort of this anti-German hysteria. And I know, so I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, heavy, heavy German population, and had read about a little bit about this or studied a little bit about it in high school history. But there was quite a hysteria um, during World War One and also World War II. But the examples I found were World War One, where there was actually the um, 1917 uh, Immigration Act which imposed literacy tests on immigrants and um, uh, the 1917 Trading with the Enemy Act, which suppressed the American foreign language press. So Iowa Governor William Harding banned the use of any foreign language 
in public in 1918, and Theodore Roosevelt endorsed the Babel Proclamation soon after, declaring that this is a nation, not a polyglot boarding house, which, um, wow. <laughs> I'm, I don't know how that would fly today. Well, maybe. I don't know how that would fly today. Um, it seems sort of um, sort of crazy, right? I mean, obviously, if we have we have immigration policy and we knowingly accept people from other countries and um, it just happens. Right. So then I think having legislation around sort of cutting them off at the knees and helping them assimilate doesn't make a lot of sense because I think, again, that seems to be really the, the, the goal, but it's interesting that this was really around world war one. And I think, you know, um, and even during world war two, there was the idea of spies among us. And if they're speaking a foreign language, you know, what are they talking about? Um, so I, I don't know, comments on xenophobia or anything that you found as well, Patrick. I mean, yeah, it's a super interesting topic. And I think it brings to light how you can kind of use language as a weapon, basically. Um, and say like, if you don't speak this language, good luck. Um, and you can kind of turn that on its head where it's just, I mean, I mean, it's not always that people who speak other languages are doing something bad. I mean, that's hardly the case. Um, but I mean, there, that can happen obviously in times of war where things get a little bit hysterical and then people are kind of basically trying to look out for themselves and look out for the people around them. So they, they latch onto that fear in any way that they can. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, that we can empathize, right? In the sense that I get it. Like if you're ever in a situation where you have people that are speaking another language, you know, maybe your first, it's probably human nature, right? Your mind says, oh my gosh, are they talking about me? Don't they like the shirt I'm wearing? What's going on? Um, so I think that I get that. But in some respects, you know, we just have to understand, I think that that is part of our our culture. Um, you know, it's, 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 Interesting that I, I think we see some examples even in more modern history with, you know, just political decisions. If we all remember the the Freedom Fries uh, after France's response during the um, the nine eleven uh, uh, response, you know that sort of thing. And it's I don't know if that's how everybody's feeling, but these are just sort of responses, I guess. And there's plenty of um, stories of things that happened after nine eleven and fear towards um, Arabic speakers of the language, right? And I, I found one interesting story. There was an Ivy League professor on a plane and he was working out a differential equation and um, the passenger next to him thought he was writing um, an Arabic text. <laughs> so he he's escorted off the plane and the irony in it is twofold, right? He was Italian, <laughs> number one. Um, and number two, it's sort of ironic that... Uh, uh, math comes from ancient Arabic texts, right? I mean, they're sort of the grandfathers of, of math or the creators of mathematics as we know it today. But I mean, it's that sort of thing. Or, you know, I have a friend of mine that's a federal agent and he said, you know, after 9-11, there were huge calls of like, wow, my neighbors, you know, speak a different language and, and they're brown. So I think they're terrorists. So, I mean, there was just a lot of that. They had an increase and it's fear. I guess it comes from fear. And, and I think... Um, if you look at the rich culture of our country, whether it's, you know, in the food that you find in different cities or, you, you know, I mean, if you look at how 
pervasive just you know mexican cuisine is or italian cuisine or german cuisine or all these different um cultures that have sort of assimilated and we think of them as everyday food everything that we find and in in our culture like just italian words and italian film and italian style uh, you know of course i'm biased so i'm going to talk about italians but I, I i don't know i i think um i think it's unfounded but i get it i mean you know thoughts patrick yeah i mean i just thought of another point while you're talking about that like um you know the example that you brought up of your friend who worked in um in a government agency who was saying they were getting a lot of calls about people speaking different languages. Um, that kind of turns the argument from before of like, why are we investing so much in foreign languages on its head? It's like, okay, if you, if that is a threat, let's just say for the sake of argument, I think it's your responsibility to understand it and know it. So you're going to have to make that investment into the language to understand it. I think we, we have a responsibility to learn other languages just for the fact of, information gathering it could be good bad whatever kind of information it is but just to know what they're saying and not just be like oh they're speaking another language we don't understand it well and i think there's huge advantages as well because when my brother and i were um uh one of our last trips to italy with my mom we were playing cards against um these two brothers from switzerland and if we hadn't been able to speak english we wouldn't have been able to cheat as effectively (laughs) so you know, I think it, it can pay huge dividends. Um, I, I think we may have made a couple thousand lira that day, which, by the way, <laughs> back then that equates to about $2. So, um, but yes, m- more seriously, of course, you know, speaking another language, like you see all the energy now in our schools. I know my, my son studied Chinese when he was in grade school. I mean, I think that's incredible. And and then studied Spanish the rest of the way. And, and that's that's a huge advantage having that other language. You know, I've told them, Hey, if you ever get into, um, you know, marketing or you work for a manufacturer or, or you go into human resources, you know, having that other language or that exposure to that other language is a huge, huge benefit. And again, just trying to help people assimilate into our culture. And I guarantee that within a few years, um, or let's just even say it to the next generation. So a little more than a few years, the Spanish, those Spanish speakers are going to be well acclimated in our country. And we may be on to the next immigrant wave. It might be another culture that um, is coming into the U.S., but it's been a focus and um, an area of growth for us. Again, you know, my opinion on that. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting as well. Uh, you know, to maybe look at the other side a little bit and you hear about this in the workplace, and I, I, I found a case uh, from 2012 where it was a, a group of Filipino workers who regularly spoke um, in Tagalog, and um, they won uh, a language discrimination lawsuit because there was uh, a bunch of workers that wanted them fired, and uh, they ended up winning a $975,000 settlement. And there's even been some lawsuits around Americans with Disabilities Act where we helped a client out of a situation where um, there were some, uh, there was a customer who came into an office and asked for assistance with their language and wasn't provided that assistance and they sued under ADA. And, you know, I don't necessarily know how I feel about those things. I mean, I guess I don't know that a lawsuit's necessary. Like my point is if you are a national retailer and you have clients that speak a certain language, I mean, not, the end goal is to generate revenue, right? And 
if you can create less friction in a transaction and you can generate more revenue, it seems like it makes sense to me to make that investment. So um, my case there maybe is just like we've always said uh, when we talk about the services we provide, right? We do one of two things. We either generate more revenue or we create more engagement with employees or customers. So if you look at that from a revenue generating um, viewpoint, it, it, it sort of makes sense, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Patrick, this is usually the point in the show where we uh, talk about biggest takeaways. What was your mm-hmm. biggest takeaway from today? Uh, mine's going to be something we haven't talked about yet, um, but I think it brings that highlights how the discussion of language in this country goes back to basically when the United States, as we know it, was created um, with the Constitution. Um, and that's the Mullenberg legend from 1794. Um, and it's a legend because there's a lot of, um, I guess, misinformation around it. Um, so the legend goes that the U.S. was one vote away from declaring German their national language in 1794. Um, but what actually happened was the House of Representatives was voting on a bill to translate the laws into German for their German constituents, um, and it missed by one vote. Um, and that vote came from the Speaker of the House, who was Frederick Mullenberg, who was ironically a German immigrant, I believe, um, and he voted it down. Um, but it's interesting that kind of how that can go from a vote to just simply translate the laws into German to saying that, oh, we were going to have German as our official language. So I think it can, things over history can get warped. And obviously the, the language history of our country goes back to right to the start. Great. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That is, that is an interesting story. And I think, I think for me, that brings it back to legislation and I thought it was interesting, and I, I didn't mention it actually in our discussion of that, but that House resolution that uh, ultimately failed the English Language Unity Act, interestingly enough, um, John McCain was one of the big detractors of that bill. And for him, it, it sort of boiled down to um, um, how that legislation was coupled to immigration. And he was a supporter of immigration reform. And I think that's what I hope for me is the biggest takeaway that for me, this discussion is somewhat apolitical. I, I guess everything probably boils down to politics, but I like to look at it maybe from a viewpoint of, you know, what are we doing from a mankind perspective, right? If you have this pocket of immigrants that at one point we allowed to come in <laughs> and they're here now, um, that problem's right in front of us. And if we can help, those folks to better learn the language and better assimilate into our culture by providing them a temporary crutch, um, you know that the next generation is going to learn how to speak English. I mean, it's inevitable. And we it's history that tells us that. Whether it's my parents that came in the 60s or whether it's the, the wave of Irish or the wave of Germans or, you know, the different waves of immigrants that came to this country – eventually the next generation will learn how to speak English and, and assimilate and be uh, productive, uh, productive people in our economy. So for me, it's like, I, I wish the politics of it would go away and we would just focus on what's in front of us. So that was my big takeaway. Any last thoughts, Patrick, before we close? 
No, I think we covered. Oh, um, I did have one actual stat um, that kind of blew my mind from that survey we were talking about at the beginning. Um, that there are 34 languages with over 100,000 native speakers in the U.S. So I was thinking, you know, maybe 10, 15 languages would have that many native speakers, but there's 34 of them. So almost double what I was thinking. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, and with that, we will close this episode of Translation Confidential. And until next time, this is Peter Argandizo and Patrick Daly signing off. Thank you.